1972, a crack commando unit was sent to a liturgical prison by a canonical court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security diocesan stockade to the ecclesial underground. Today, still wanted by the Vatican, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, then you should listen to Liber Cristo War College. Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. Uh, today is the feast day of the, of the most holy name of Jesus, the name above all names. You should find any excuse throughout the day just to say the name of Jesus. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, come to my assistance. Find any excuse to say the name of Jesus. Also, remember as Catholics, we're still in the Christmas season. So, uh, Hope you have your Christmas trees up. I hope you have your Christmas lights on. We are still in the Christmas season. Let's not forget. Let's let our neighbors know that uh, this uh, Christmas is such an amazing time that for us as Catholics, it takes more than one day to celebrate it. And uh, the month of January is dedicated to the holy name of Jesus. It's the entire month. So uh, as Catholics, let's remember that uh, 2024, uh, you know, uh, gird your loins, as the Bible says, and let's get ready to evangelize, evangelize, and evangelize. Kyle, welcome, brother. We haven't, uh, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. So welcome back to uh, Wednesday War College. Thank you very much for having me, Jesse. It's so good to be with you on this, the tenth day of Christmas. Amen. Kyle, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to. How people can get a hold of some of the things that you're doing. Um, some of the things, some of the seminars that you guys got going on at Monte Cristo. Can you uh, let the audience know they're asking, where's Kyle been at? <laughs> Thank you so much, Jesse. So yes, you can keep up with us at www.montecristo.net. And uh, there's a lot of things. I encourage you to go to that website, register as a member of the Monte Cristo, Libra Cristo Communities. <clears throat> and there are a lot of talks, audios, various resources there uh, by Dr. Dan Schneider, by uh, Jesse, by Father Ripperger and myself. <clears throat> We've got several trainings coming up for those that are participatory in the uh, liberation ministry, um, as well as exorcist trainings, priest retreats. That's probably something that y you might think about is uh, sponsoring a priest for a priest retreat or sponsoring a priest um, uh, as a, to go through exorcist training or general practitioner training. A lot of resources there. Uh, and then I hit the road every January. Next week, I will be in New Orleans, Louisiana for a parish mission. And then the next week up at St. Helena in Amite, Louisiana, that is the home parish of uh, Father Mark Beard, God rest his soul, a very bright light, shining star, shooting star, if you will, that we lost this past year. But um, anyway, that's what I've got the next few weeks, and then we are uh, into the training season, if you will. So thank you, Jesse, very much for that opportunity. So you're going to be out there in Father Stu's country. Right? That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. I heard I heard he was a legendary man in himself in his own right. 
Hey, uh, Kyle, let me get some thoughts uh, before we uh, before I start asking you about uh, the Liber Crystal four phase protocol. I got some specific questions, but uh, your thoughts on the pushback all over the world by clergy and lay people, theologians, the international pushback on fiducia supplicans. To me, that was an example of what I would call the census fidelium. This, you know, the sense of the faithful all over the world where uh, people sensed and discerned that, uh, as they say uh, in Texas, uh, you know, Houston, we've got problems. And I think people all over the world, after they read the document and they saw the way it was being carried out by Father James Martin and others, uh, they said, you know what? Will Rogers, danger, danger, danger. And there was pushback. And it looks like if the Holy See, they've relaxed their declaration and said, well, you know what? Um, you don't have to enforce it. Every bishop could, uh, you know, enforce it if they, if they, if, or utilize it if they please. What do you think about this whole uh, brouhaha? So if we work backwards, I, I think, thank you for the opportunity to, to wade off into this morass, this mud hole, if you will. Um, but if we apply the Holy See's response to the latest pushback, which was bishops are open to interpret this motu proprio, this declaration, uh, according to their own sensibilities, is that, am I interpreting that correctly as the last statement that the, the Holy See has made regarding this declaration? Yeah, I t- t- yeah the way I, I read it is uh, you're free to... Uh, you're free to implement it in your diocese uh, and, uh, upon your own discretion. I think that's the way I kind of read it myself, along with what you just said, both. I read both what you just said, and also they have their own discretion as bishop to enforce it or not, or to utilize it or not. Okay, so let's apply just some universal principles of fatherhood, authority, uh, right governance, if you will. So, Jesse, let's suppose that um, the uh, the FCC, which regulates the Virgin Most Powerful Radio, how you broadcast, the strength of your signal, various other things, if they were to say on Saturdays, you can feel free to do whatever you want, what would be your general, they would say the rules don't apply on Saturday, or you can use your own discretion. What would be your reaction to that? Well, again, it's as human beings, you know, we're going to, our default position is our concupiscence. We're going to take the path of least resistance, or we're going to do what's easier for us. Right. And would you suppose that if the rules don't apply on Saturday, then why would they apply on Friday? Yep. I know exactly where you're going with this, and it makes sense. Yep. Common sense 101. if, 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 yeah. So if the bishops are open to interpret this directive, then should not they be open to interpret traditionis uh, constodis? The, uh, shouldn't they be allowed that same latitude? That makes sense. You're right. Let each bishop decide whether they want the Latin master or not. Absolutely makes perfect sense. So there's an inconsistency so, here. Bingo. And that's what's lacking. And that's one of the differences between an angelic paradigm and a diabolical paradigm is in the angelic paradigm, a rule is a rule is a rule. It's called the rigidity that is necessary to maintain a structure. Amen. Yep. And the modernist 
and the demon militates against rigidity, against structure. The, uh, the uh, vagary is their friend, and there is no clear, um, there's no clear directive. Um, even truth is relative. And so this is exactly where we find ourselves. Mm. Kyle, you know, I was looking up uh, a concordance the other day, lightning in the Bible, Old and New Testament, and there's over 40 verses that talk about the way God speaks to us through lightning. Uh, it's it's kind of a constant motif in the Old and New Testament. And I find it interesting that, <clears throat> that there was a statue of St. Peter in the Diocese of Buenos Aires, Argentina. It's actually one of the uh, outlying cities, but it's within that, within that diocese. And lightning hit on Pope Francis's birthday. It hit the lightning of the halo and hit the lightning on the right hand that had a key and pulverized it decimated it completely, incinerated it. It happened on the birthday of Pope Francis, and he was the Archbishop Cardinal of that Archdiocese for like 20 years, for a long, long time. <clears throat> and so that parish, I think it's called the San Nicolas. Um, the next day, Islam Fiducia Supplicans was released. Uh, and, and I'm also reminded about 2013 when Pope Benedict resigned, Lightning also hit the cupola of the dome over in St. Peter's uh, the day he turned in his resignation. To me, uh, you know, I'm not, one, I'm not somebody who was given over to a lot of sensationalism and private revelations. I'm, I'm more kind of a wonky, the apologetic type guy, you know, prove it to me from scripture and tradition. But boy, oh boy, I don't think those two are coincidences. Pope uh, uh, Benedict resigns, lightning hits uh, St. Peter's. <laughs> the Lord is speaking. Uh I don't want you to resign. You're going against my will. Then lightning hits the statue of St. Peter the day before this uh, horrendous uh, declaration is released, uh, Fiducia Supplicans. Uh, to me, just from somebody who reads scripture, uh, I know God speaks and gets our attention to us like lightning. What do you think about that? Just a coincidence? Nothing to see here? So there's, first of all, there's no coincidences. I think, um, you know, anyone who's been Christian for very long recognizes there's no coincidences. Uh, or another way to say it is a coincidence is when God wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, but but you, you can't discount the scientific, science leads us to God. So what is the scientific phenomenon that, um, that, precedes lightning. The scientific phenomenon is opposition of charge. It means that the heavens are no longer in conformity with the ground. There is an opposition. There is an adversity mm -hmm. between the atmosphere of the ground and the atmosphere of the heavens. And I think that's exactly what we see. Whenever there is a nonconformity of our will to God's will, there is this often violent and adverse reaction. And so I think nature speaks to, uh, again, to he who authored nature. This is, this is simply a demonstrative theophany that is occurring uh, on a regular basis. <laughs> Twice in our lifetime over in the Holy See. Wow, you're listening to Wednesday War College. <laughs> Go ahead, Kyle. I, th I think also not to be missed is that what is lost? Um, hold that thought. Uh, the hold halo that thought. is indicative. Hold that thought, my friend. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Wednesday War College.
Wednesday War College. We're still in the liturgical season known as Christmas. The month of January is dedicated to the holy name of Jesus. Find any excuse throughout the day to say the name of Jesus with faith, hope, and love. Kyle, you had some thoughts about uh, the event that happened over in uh, the Diocese of Buenos Aires, Argentina, the lightning that struck the statue of St. Peter. You're making some thoughts, making some comments. Yes, Jesse, I think it I think it bears deeper reflection and, and contemplation or consideration, and that is <clears throat> what was destroyed on the on the statue was um the halo, the right hand, and what the right hand held. And so if we if we look at that in depth, first of all, the halo. The halo has always been indicative of a saint. And one of the definitions of a saint is those whose will is in total conformity to God's holy will, meaning all of his thoughts, all of his words, all of his actions are give glory to God. And so when the halo is destroyed, this is an indication that the thoughts and the actions consistent with um, that particular effigy or who that represents is no longer in conformity with God. And so there's a symbol or a sign. Then if we move to the hand, the hand in that particular statue held the keys, the keys entrusted to St. Peter. These were the keys to heaven. And so that's a very indicative that the the keys are lost. The the key to heaven is lost. The keys to heaven, uh, what you bind on earth is bound on earth. What you loose on earth is loose on earth and in heaven. And so, This latest document very simply um, advocates letting people remain and affirming them in habitual mortal sin. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly counter to um, the primary mission of the Catholic Church, which is the salvation of souls, not the accommodation or satisfaction of society. And finally, the right hand of Peter, that is the blessing hand. Blessing means right relationship with God and the conference of a priestly blessing. What is happening is when this blessing is conferred, it is the conference of a damnation, not a blessing. It is a damnation in the guise of a blessing, which affirms a soul in and encourages them to continue in their state of habitual mortal sin. Wow. Uh, that's uh, You went a lot deeper than I even... Than I even... <laughs> Uh, was uh, reflecting and meditating upon this this whole event. It's a it's it's a lot. De- there's more than meets the eye uh, to what you just said. Uh, yeah, good good stuff. Hey Kyle, uh, let me uh, let, let's get uh, to 2024. A lot of people on Wednesdays they listen to this program. A lot of priests, in fact, because uh, they're trying to understand the four phase protocol to the best of their ability. So. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple of questions uh, that I've got from the audience, and maybe uh, you can uh, tell us a little bit about this four-phase protocol. I've told people that it's the intellectual property of yourself and Father Chad Ripperger. You guys came up with this. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, you guys probably came up with this because you guys have been involved in, in healing, deliverance, and exorcism for two decades now. Uh, you've seen it done in many places like I have when I lived in Southern California and I helped several priests out there. Uh, they borrowed more the Protestant Pentecostal model, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, that 
you you seek the person that has the charism and uh, there was no uh you know there was no uh, protocol there was no trying to get the person to get back into a, into right order into right relationship with god and so i i, I guess you you and father ripgrim price said okay there's we've got to go back to the tradition of the church and we've got to see how it was practiced so would it be a fair statement to say that the four phase protocol is more of a monastic model to help a dia- uh, a person who's diabolically afflicted and it's it's meant to reorder their interior life w- would that be a fair uh definition I think it's a very accurate definition that's a very accurate observation so let's uh let's go to phase one okay because there's four phases it, it, it borrow it borrows the medical model and all phases take about 30 days 30 60 90. And I know there's, uh, even in the secular world, you'll have psychologists and psychiatrists, they talk about the 2190 rule. They'll say that it usually takes uh, 21 days for somebody to, you know, to break a habit, and then 90 days for that, uh, for that to become habituated. That, that, that's, that'll be something that's now, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's normative, it's part of your behavior. So you call that the 2190 rule. Did you and Father Ripperger kind of, have that in the back of your mind as you guys came up with the four phase protocol? Actually, uh, we didn't consciously have it in the back of our mind, but it, it follows a couple of universal principles. And so, um, number one is the, you know, universal principle of numerology. And you can see again, God in nature, God in numerology. And so the 21 days, it follows St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, in order to uh, purify something, you have to stop the pollution. You have to stop that which works against purity. And so the 21-day rule is there's 21 days of cessation, meaning you have to stop. And so you, it, he says that in order to um, gain virtue, vice has to stop. In order to gain purity, the impure has to stop. And so 21 days of not doing something does not mean or equate to 21 days of doing something good. So if I spend 21 days not doing something bad, then all I've done is cease doing the bad. It doesn't mean that I've I've done the good. Right. Okay. So any any of the rehabilitation programs or anything else talks about that. So what is the significance of 21? The two and the one together are three. That is the Trinity. If we take 21 and look at weeks, it's three sevens. What is seven? It is the days of creation, um, including the day of rest. And so it is the temporal four plus the spiritual three, which is a completion. So it's you see that there's a we react to these things, whether we know them consciously or don't know them consciously. Now, what is the significance of the 90? So. If I stop doing something for 21 days, for 21 days, I do not engage in the sin, then I've broken the habituation of the sin. Now I must habituate virtue for 90 days in opposition to replace, to fill the house swept clean, to to now address this vacancy that is left by uh, the cessation of the evil. I must replace that with good. What's the significance of the 90? Nine is three threes, spiritual perfection taken to perfection. There's also nine choirs of angels. 
what is the significance of the 10? Today is the 10th day of Christmas when we talk about 10 lords leaping. The 10 represents the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. So I must perfect the law. I must practice the law, the virtue, that which is good, the pursuit of the good to the ninth, to, to the extent um, that it now becomes virtuous. It now becomes habituated in a positive sense. It takes longer to habituate the good than it does the bad because of our concupiscence, because of our fallen nature, our predilection uh, to, to go toward the bad that is, is our, within our fallen nature. So it's a striving for the good. The bad tends to be the default. We, we like to think otherwise. We like to say, well, our default, he's a good person. Um, this is in opposition to what the, the patriarchs, the church fathers said, is, is that uh, any good in us, us is God. Um, and so that is the imitation of God, the fostering of an image of God within us. And so there's a short riff on the 2190 and the spiritual significance of the 2190 observation that, that you made. And so yeah. Yeah. the other thing is, is that, go ahead, please. Let me just mention one thing. You know, it's it's interesting uh, the way Liber Crystal uses this model. Again, you said, you know, St. Thomas is already talking about this a thousand years ago. And a lot of people now in modern times are, are <clears throat> they're understanding this because even in the secular world, I know my, my you know, my, my young men, boys that are, try, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're into working out and stuff. And there's this thing called Exodus 90 that all these young guys, you know, they say, hey, are you doing Exodus 90? It's a 90 day workout plan to get, you know, rock hard, so to speak, you know, ripped and rock hard. So they, they, they go through that. It takes 90 days to habituate the body to exercise and to get, you know, in, in good shape. And you also have even in the in the Catholic world, there's also, uh, uh, yeah, in the Catholic world, it's called Exodus 90. In the secular world, they also have another program for young men. It's called PX90, how to get in shape in 90 days. So there's a lot of people that are discovering what you just said right now. I guess what St. Thomas said, you know, a thousand years ago, that it takes 90 days uh, to habituate something. Uh, so it becomes, you know, uh, it, it becomes uh, a habit forming and uh, and you move on from vice to virtue. Uh, so it's did you did you guys have that in mind when you guys came up with this or did you guys just simply look to saint thomas when you guys came up with this four-phase protocol well what we were doing uh, i think it's a both and what we were doing is saying what did they what did the ancients do how did how did the church address this issue and so what they would do is first of all is there's actually a phase zero um, now that we're coming to recognize this, and Father Ripper's, in fact, giving a retreat for priests on this concept this year, um, information at MonteCristo.net. <clears throat> but phase zero is what we call exhausting the pastoral remedy or identifying the nails. And if someone would like to watch, there's a YouTube out there called It's Not About the Nails. And so this is the idea that you would address or you identify the obvious impediments to grace or defects. The problem modernly is our priests are no longer acting as fathers. They're acting as friends, brothers, counselors, supporters, uh, advocates, if you will, but not fathers. They're called father because a father's job is to 
correct, to show you your error, to bring you back into right relationship, to show you where discipline has failed, etc. And modernly, priests are taught to be counselors and friends and accompany people in their in their sin. This latest uh, directive or uh, blessing document is a classic example yeah. of that. Yes, it is. is no one's willing to to do the hard stuff of being a father. And so that's phase zero, exhausting a pastoral remedy, addressing the obvious. Got it. So uh, let's move on to phase two. So the person, let's say the person does the phase one, uh, the prayer protocol, and they, they do it just like clockwork. They uh, they do the media fast. They're just, all they're doing is reading, uh, you know, the daily mass readings, and they follow everything to a T. On the next segment, I want you to tell us what is phase two and phase three, and then the final segment, uh, I'd like you to tell us, and what is phase four. You're listening to Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. For those of you that don't know who Kyle Clement, you guys are saying, it's okay, who is this guy? Kyle Clement is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to Catholic spiritual warfare. He's been doing this for about two decades. He's worked with some of the most uh, most respected exorcists in the country. Uh, he's been working with Father Chad Ripperger for about the last 15, 16, maybe 17 years. Uh, and so he's, uh, I-, I like to think about when when I was a kid, I used to like to watch Batman and Robin, and uh, so I'm I'm dating myself. Uh, well, that's basically the dynamic duo that we have today in terms of spiritual warfare. You don't get the top of the food chain is Father Chad Ripperger and Kyle Clement, and we have uh, uh, we have the honor of having him here a couple of Wednesdays a month, giving us what I would call high high level spiritual warfare. Uh, Kyle, I just called you uh, Robin. What do you think about that? Uh. Uh, I think I would prefer Alfred, but uh, I. <laughs> I was actually going to uh, thank you. you uh, do you remember the the series, um, uh, the Green Hornet, Cato and Bruce Lee? Remember him? Oh, Green very Hornet. much. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You guys are also Father Ripperger is uh, the Green Hornet, and uh, Kyle Clement is uh, Cato. Yep, that's that's the team. And thanks be to God <laughs> that, that I'm able I'm able to have Cato here a couple of Wednesdays a month. So let's go on. So. Now the person just completely followed phase one like a soldier. Now we take them on to phase two. They're still continuing their prayer protocol, correct, Kyle? They're still continuing the media fast, but now they're getting into now catechesis, correct? Now the the, the team is is going to start working with this person for 30 days, correct? That's correct. And so I think that if we look at, we went through phase one, exhausted the pastoral remedy, and there were indicators that this was extraordinary. And I think that's an important point to make is that in the charismatic model, the presumption is that all adversity is, is extraordinary. In the monastic model, the presumption is all adversity uh, is ordinary until proven extraordinary. And that's a key departure. And so in order to prove or to give us indication that it's extraordinary, we go through phase one. 
And that phase one is the prayer and discipline, as you said, uh, along with some other uh, things that are observed. And then at the end of phase one, things will either get better, get worse, or stay the same. And so you in, you evaluate those responses to see if you've got indicators that what the person is experiencing in response to the protocol is getting worse, and it's getting worse with a specificity and a religious context, then we go to phase two. So phase two involves going through, and this is where we use um, Dr. Schneider's uh, compilation of our phase two materials, which is the Libra Cristo Field Manual for Spiritual Warfare. It's divided into 12 lessons, and those lessons are arranged <clears throat> in descending order of statistical uh, occurrence, meaning if the, the first lesson has to do with evil influences and then so on. And so what we did was we saw every single case that we had there were some evil influences in the person's life that allowed the demon to, to either remain or to, to cycle back into the person's life. So lesson one identifies those. So a mentor couple takes them through these 12 lessons methodically and then gives the pastor the information on where <clears throat> there are impediments to grace, a lack of catechetical understanding and or practice. Yeah. And let me ask you, is the person, the uh, the penitent, are they still doing the phase one prayer protocol while they're going through phase two catechesis and renunciations? Exactly. It's a great point. And so this is a baseline. So once that baseline prayer and discipline is established, things may be added to or taken from but that is your baseline that you establish. And so you're precisely right, Jesse. It's a good, it's a good observation is that's the baseline. We may add things to it. We may take some things from it, but that's your baseline. And, uh, and, and what the penitent is being taken through is, is basically, as I, as I see it, it's basically basic Baltimore catechism, information that somebody would learn years ago before making their first Holy Communion, right? I mean, we're not talking about, they're not getting taken into deep theology, are they? Well, no, they're not. They're not taking getting into deep theology, but it's the devil's in the details. It's in the practice. It's in the implementation. So we all pray the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What we lose is that if my mother-in-law is cursing me via Curandero and I have a resentment towards her ongoing and I don't like her, then that's what's allowing her curse to be effective on me and my family is my uh, lack of full participation in the forgiveness portion of the Our Father. And that's why in the Phase 2 protocol, the mentor couple is uh, is is going through uh these 12 lessons and having the person the penitent also do the prayers at the end which may be renunciation prayers uh uh you know freemasonry or renunciation prayers of a curse they those 12 lessons are meant to kind of uh shore up or close the doors for uh for any uh or or or, or basically remove any impediments right 
any impediments to grace. Precisely right. Yeah, precisely right. It's to identify impediments to grace so that the pastor can seek the remedy to help the person remove them. And, and you come up with, you uncover all kinds of things. For instance, we had a, a case last week. What came forward was that um, the sacrament of reconciliation, our confession was failing because um, there was a priest who was counseling these people. You don't have to confess unforgiveness if you're not yet um, ready to forgive that person. So simply uh, confess what you can confess and and don't worry about the other as long as you're working on it. Well, wow. this is a theological uh, malformation in the priest that actually works to negate the e- efficacy uh, of the sacrament. And so it allows there to be this diabolical presence ongoing uh, to that family. And interestingly, it's, I'm not, uh, this is a fairly common occurrence is there's oftentimes misunderstanding in functional theology, not only on the penitent's part, but sometimes on the part of the priest. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, when you see, uh, uh, the father James Martins, and, and I'm sure he's not the only one out there that's malformed and, uh, and has these modernist Marxist tendencies, uh, I, I think there's been a whole slew of them ever since Baladad warned us back in the 1950s. So this is what we're dealing with today as well. So, Kyle, uh, you're so precisely, precisely right. So let's say the person now has gone through the 12 lessons on phase two. They've uh, <clears throat> they've identified through this mentor couple, the impediments to grace. They've uh, they've continued phase one. Also, the prayer protocol, obviously, but phase two. <clears throat> now they've gotten to some catechesis. Uh, some understanding of b- the basics of the Catholic faith, and uh, and they've also done uh, different renunciation prayers uh, with that mentor couple. Uh, you know, breaking soul ties and maybe uh, uh, renouncing Freemasonry in the past, etc. So now, the person still feels there's still still some level of diabolical affliction. Now they go on to phase three, and the mentor couple takes them to the pastor. And now what happens at phase three? Do they continue with the stringent prayer protocol in phase three? You do. And there's a couple of other things that happen before we close out phase two. So, okay. <clears throat> again, you're looking, for the, you're looking for the indicator that what they're experiencing is extraordinary. And they've addressed all the impediments to grace. They're, they're back in full conformity with teaching with the Catholic Church. Um, their marriage has been convalidated, etc. They've confessed all sin. They've, they've, they're reconciled with God. And this is an important part, is they're reconciled with God via the sacraments. Now what you're going to look at is what is the psychological state and history of the person? What is the medical state and history of the person? Is there a psychological and or medical explanation or even partial explanation for what they are experiencing because 90% of oppressions will lift in phase one, 90% of obsessions will lift in phase two. So all we're left with at the end of phase two, when someone's been psychologically evaluated, medically evaluated, and they're still experiencing some type of extraordinary diabolical affliction, what we found is there is a very clear, 100% accurate religious context or religious trigger because the demon is reacting to the religious trigger. 
the religious symbolism, the element, the language, same language in the prayer, same sacred art, same saint, same sacramental, etc. Now you've identified with specificity a demon that is there as an oppressor, uh, I mean, an obsessor or a possessor. So he's there in a formalized way, and he's there ritualistically, meaning he's there because of either a, a long-term habituated practice or a rite and a ritual. This is why the Freemasonic renunciations come at the end of phase two, and you've isolated the Freemasonic renunciations. Many models use the Freemasonic renunciations way too early as a kind of a um, preventative, if you almost, let's get this out of the way. And they're not near as effective as if you've isolated it here at the end of phase two, and then you do the renunciations, you get a very clear response, one that's not easily confused with another response. This is where we will also see uh, the effects of generational witchcraft, satanic practices, satanic ritualistic abuse, because again, there's an institutional and or uh, ritualistic element. If they are here at the end of phase two, we've already addressed all these things and the demon is still there. Hold that thought, my friend. Wednesday War College, Catholic Spiritual Warfare, getting three college units after this show, trust me. We'll be right back. Just remember, call Clement. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Wednesday War College, we are in the liturgical season known as Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. And uh, also the month of January is dedicated to the holy name of Jesus. Find any excuse throughout the day to say the name of Jesus with faith, hope, and love. And just uh, just project out those prayers and that holy name into the cosmos that it may, uh, that it may just uh, affect everybody around you. Kyle, we're talking about the four-phase protocol, and we're right now on phase three. So we've just gone through phase one, the prayer protocol, the, the monastic prayer protocol, phase two, which includes a prayer protocol and catechesis and renun- uh, 12 lessons of uh, renouncing different prayers and, 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 and catechesis. Now we're going on phase three. Now we've got a mental health expert that's brought in into the mix to make sure that, that the person... Uh, is uh, I guess mentally stable, emotionally stable to make sure that that it is uh, diabolical affliction and it's just not simply mental illness. Correct? That's precisely right. And I think one of the misconceptions is modernly we think that it's either or. It's either psychological or spiritual. And our experience is that it's both and. Um, but the demon is going to use the psychological and or physical malady um, and amplify it, exacerbate it, if you will. Um, and so this protocol allows us to see how the, if it's present and how the demon is using these particular maladies or defects. Then based upon what we found out in phase one and phase two, there's a specificity um, with with 
the demons that are left that you're dealing with that are there in a formal capacity. And so I think the uh, important observation to make is that even if you've got a preternatural sign, an indicator of a full classic possession, we still go through phases one, two, and three. The reason being is our experience is that never do you have simply one possessor or one or two possessors. There is always a legion. There is always a crowd. There is always multiple demons there. And in every possession case, we've had demons there in obsessing capacities and oppressing capacities as well. So what you want to do is get rid of the entourage, the heel nipper demons, the afflicting, the lesser demons, if you will, and get rid of them, clear the area so that you're only dealing with the possessors. And this greatly shortens the time that we spend in phase three and phase four and it ensures that the person has a better chance of being uh, remaining free, maintaining liberation. Because what we've found quite often is that if you rush to the formal right, you may well expel the possessing demon, but you're left with, if you haven't addressed the obsessors and the oppressors, they're still there because the right of exorcism doesn't necessarily expel them. And so this is an interesting understanding that we're coming to uh, is that you, you must work from the bottom up, if you will. And those demons of affliction, those demons that militate against um, governance and, and life circumstances, those things, those are cleared out so that you're dealing only with the possessor. Um, I think I'll, that when you look, look at it, go ahead. Is is there also there are also demons lower level demons or inferior demons, aren't they called watcher demons? The watchers. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can certainly have watchers, sentinels, um, those that are, and those are usually conscripted. They're not possessing in the classic sense. And those would be they would be the lower level demons, correct? That's correct. So one of the ways to think about it is um, in one of our our teachings, we talk about the configurations of demons around the part three persons of the Trinity and those demons that are configured, those lower choirs that are configured around the Holy ghost, uh, which is charity militate directly opposite of charity. And so instead of they were created as ministering angels, they now operate as afflicting demons. And that's a good way to think of it. So instead of bringing comfort, they bring discomfort, they bring irritation. What about the other? Now you got me curious. So uh, you use the tr Trinity as a as a point of departure. What would the other demons? How would they militate against the second person in the Trinity and the Father? Great. And so the second person of the of the Trinity, Christ, um, it, inseparable are Christ, His Mother, and His Church. And so they militate against the sacraments. They militate against the liturgy. They militate against the understanding of who the Blessed Mother is. Oh, they are Kyle, right. Kyle, those, those are active right now. <laughs> what you just said, they're active right now. <laughs> you they're very, said they they're militate very against the liturgy. Yeah. And so they're called uh, the hierarchy of governance because... Christ is our Lord. Lord is a term of governance, a term of sovereignty. And so that's, that gives you an idea of how those choirs militate. This is most of the possessors. 
um, are coming out of these three choirs, this hierarchy. And then the top hierarchy, seraphim, cherubim, and thrones are called the contemplative hierarchy, and they are configured around God the Father. They are about contemplation. They're about the integrity of creation and identity. And so many demons possess in their name and will identify. Demons always name up. They will identify often as Lucifer or Satan. And in fact, they're not. They're simply possessing in that name. And they're, they're aping Christ who says, I come to do the will of my father. And so these governance demons often identify as Satan himself or as Lucifer, but they are very rarely him. Carl, let me ask you a question. Uh, when, we, when you get to phase four and the priest starts praying the, the, the rite of exorcism, how long does it take? So I got a question here from the audience. How long does it take to do chapter two and chapter three? Generally speaking. So an exorcism. Yeah, so an exorcist, remember that chapter 2 and chapter 3 are only a portion of the solemn rite. The solemn rite taken in its totality is about a two-hour to two-hour and 20-minute process, depending on how proficient the exorcist is with his Latin and how proficient the um, assistants are in helping and in helping him with the accoutrement, the various sacramentals and other things necessary. So anywhere from two hours to two hours and 20 minutes. That's what it takes to get through uh, chapter two and chapter three in Latin, right? Correct. Uh, why is Latin more effective than English or Spanish or Chinese uh, during the rite of exorcism? Two reasons. Uh, number one is because uh, it, it, I'm going to give it in opposite uh, order of, of ranking, as St. Thomas would say. So the less um, the lesser of the reasons is that the solemn rite is written in Latin. It's only, it's the 1614 rite by St. Charles Borromeo, written by the commission of the Council of Trent, and it is uh, only in Latin. That's the only approved version of that, only approved translation. And the, the demons know that translation. Um, the second one is, and most important, is that it is the last of the sacred languages. What makes Latin a sacred language is not that it is the language of the church. It is that it is the last living language that was placed on the placard above our Lord at Calvary. The inscription being in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Only the Latin is exactly the same. There's no such thing as slang Latin. So the Latin written and spoken then is exactly the same as it is written and spoken now, and there is no deviation in its meaning or import. Kyle, let me, I want to try to get one or two more questions in before we wrap it up here. Who suffers more from demonic possession, men or women, in your experience or in the church's experience? Um. Who suffers more is a, is a good question. Uh, I don't think there's a differentiation in who suffers more. Who is more likely to seek help is women. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's the question. So would you say that more women suffer from diabolical possession than men? No, I would say more women who are possessed seek help. Okay, so men probably get possessed in the same rate. They just don't seek help. Correct. 
Here's a question. So when would a priest know that it's time, okay, he's doing the, the solemn rite, the solemn session, and you know he goes for, you said, about two hours, and he does it in Latin. When does he know that it's time to stop? When, uh, when the person's liberated, how does he know that? Or does he just see, well, this guy's taking a beating, the demon's taking a beating, uh, maybe I'll stop and we'll continue this next week. When do, does a priest know to stop? So very simply, what Father instructs is go through the right, complete the right, and stop. Um, Exhibit control of the demon, get him to stop his activity, um, get him to be present to the right, go through the right, and stop. Take a break, and then come back. You've got to be, um, it's like a chemotherapy. If you chemotherapy you've got to keep in mind the health and the resilience the stamina of the patient you can't kill the patient to kill the cancer (laughs) and so you have to be mindful of what are the physical limitations of the human and at the same time take the demon to the edge and point of despair um because ultimately it's not his election to come or go um there has to be a certain amount of justice exacted not only upon the demon but on the part of the human soul. So the human, uh, you'll get to a point in some of these possession cases where the human has reached a level of great sanctity, and it's torturous for the demon simply to be inside them. And so now you're exacting justice on the demon, and that's totally up to God. Christ uh, relegates and, and um, dictates every bit, of, every element of the possession. Last question, Kyle. When uh... Does does an exorcist take a break during the sessions at times, or that's just up to his discretion if he sees a person maybe taking a beating or something? Does he take a break, or does he just go through the whole rite until he finishes? And so you go through the whole rite until you finish. If you stop the rite, you're supposed to close the rite. Um, think of the rite as being a surgical procedure. And so once you open it, once you begin, you will either finish or you will stop the procedure and close it up. That makes sense. Good stuff, Kyle. Thanks a lot, my friend. Happy Holy New Year's. And uh, uh, glad uh, glad to have you back on board for 2024 for some more high-level spiritual warfare. Uh, if you can get a hold of Kyle and see what he's up to, montecristo.net, montecristo.net. And you can track some of his presentations and some of his seminars and his schedule. Uh, Thank you very much, Kyle. God bless you, my friend. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Up next, more VMPR radio, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay tuned. As for us, we are out. EOW, end of watch. We are out. God bless you.